welcome or welcome back to City Breaks London, episode 21, Hampton Court. I'm Marion Jones. My aim with City Breaks is to offer all the research and background culture, history and whatnot about various sites, in this case around London, that you would research for yourself if only you had the time and which, if you're familiar with them, will enhance your visit to the place in question or possibly just give you an interesting half hour or so of things to listen to. So today we're setting out from the city centre, 13 miles or so. You can get to Hampton Court on the train from Waterloo to what surely must be one of the world's most glamorous and beautiful riverside palaces, most closely connected with Henry VIII, but actually linked to a good many more members of the royal family over the centuries, and somewhere whose beauty strikes you, I think, the minute you arrive. Just walking up the drive, you're immediately struck by those glorious buildings. And that's before you realise what's behind the actual main gate and the front facade that you can see. As ever, the rough guide put it very well, describing it as, quote, positively prickling with turrets, castellations, chimney pots and pinnacles. Yes, for me, that sums it up. It's one of those buildings that always seems to have unexpected nooks and crannies at whichever way you look. A new vista round every corner. Somewhere with history oozing out of every brick, and somewhere where you know all kinds of historical moments, from the exciting to the truly terrifying, took place. As the guidebook itself puts it, this was a place dedicated to royal pleasure and flamboyant display while private intrigue and political debate played out to sometimes deadly effect. A riverside treasure house of art and stories, a unique mixture of Tudor and Baroque architecture within beautiful gardens and parkland. You certainly could spend a whole day here. You could decide to focus on just one aspect. I think a lot of people are most interested in all the Tudor trappings. You could certainly make a number of visits, if you're in London for long enough, or indeed, regularly. So, how did it all start? The land was originally owned by a group called the Knights Hospitalier, but in 1494 it was leased by one of Henry VII's senior courtiers, and that's where the royal connection began. Buildings were started, but it was in 1514 that the big moment came, because the site was bought by Thomas Wolsey, top churchman, top politician, top administrator to Henry VIII, Eventually he became a cardinal, and he began to turn it into a palace. He had new courtyards built, a long gallery all along the gardens. He created a new chapel and a cloister for state processions. He filled it with tapestries, and so by 1525, the comment was made that this was now truly a palace. Perhaps the high point of the era when Thomas Wolsey was there came in 1527, when an important ambassador's visit arrived from France. We are told by one gentleman usher, George Cavendish, who was in service at the time, about what happened when all these important people arrived. Every one of them, he said, was conveyed to his chamber, having in them great fires and wine to refresh them, two great pots of silver, one pot at the least with wine and beer, a bowl or goblet and a silver pot to drink beer in, a silver candlestick or two. Thus every chamber was furnished throughout the house. So yes, a place of great hospitality, but one where you certainly wanted to impress your guests. Unfortunately, it was only about two years later that Wolsey had fallen out of favour. 
He hadn't managed to persuade the Pope to agree to Henry's divorce. So Henry, true to form, had him removed from power and also removed from Hampton Court. There are still rooms there today known as the Woolsey Rooms, three floors of reception rooms, the long gallery, all lavishly decorated with painted ceilings and lots of tapestries. Woolsey was very fond of tapestries. I believe he had about 600 in total by the end. And this little fragment of poetry, written in 1521, describes them. Hanging about the walls, cloths of gold and palls, arras of rich array, fresh as flowers in May. So the palls are cloth coverings on the walls, and the arras a finer version of same, fine tapestries. There are, incidentally, a few of these still left in the great watching chamber, which you can see as part of your visit. Henry had long been rather jealous of this lovely house and of the lavish style of entertainment that Woolsey had long put on. And so, shortly after Woolsey was arrested for high treason, dying soon afterwards when being taken from York to London, Henry grabbed the house and everything in it. He went on to spend vast amounts of money on it, even though, in fact, he was only there for roughly three weeks every year. It's believed for about 800 days in total. But still, he is the monarch most associated with the palace, and all six of his queens are said to have spent time here, and there were also some set-piece extravaganzas, masterminded as only Henry knew how. In 1546, for example, a large party of French visitors arrived for six days of lavish entertainment. And when I say a large party, I mean an ambassador, his retinue of 200 people or so, and 1,300 members of their court. So yes, they were all found places to sleep, they were wined and dined, and throughout the grounds, much merry was made. By this point, Henry had not only taken over the house, he'd grabbed roughly 750 acres surrounding it to create a deer park. In fact, it's said that the deer that you can see there today may well be descended from the original deer which Henry brought. Also in the grounds, lovely things like Henry's privy garden. You can still find that on the map of the grounds, but it doesn't look at all as it did in his day. But fortunately, we do have the description of a German visitor who tells us that what he really admired was the topiary, the way the trees in the garden had been cut into, quote, all manner of shapes, men and women, centaurs, sirens, serving maids with baskets, French lilies, delicate crenellations, all true to life, and so cleverly and intricately interwoven. There were pretty little raised walkways, there were towers here and there, so you could climb up and view the hunting park, and just a few minutes' walk down the river bank was another splendid garden, the Mount Garden, with its splendid domed banqueting house built on top of a mount, so you could dine up there, and drink wine from the cellars which were part of the building, enjoying riverside views. Having wandered up the pretty little winding path to get there, which was planted with sweet-smelling shrubs on both sides. And just downriver from that, the water gate, where the royal barge could dock. Also in the grounds was the tilt yard, built in 1537 or so, next door to the great orchard. Henry's jousting days were almost behind him at this stage, so he didn't use it overmuch although there are records of him going to watch jousting there, such as in the Chronicle of Henry Machin, written in 1557. On the 29th day of December, Princess Elizabeth sat with their majesties and the nobility at a grand spectacle of jousting when 200 spears were broken. 
There were real tennis courts, there were bowling alleys. The whole thing was really one great vast pleasure garden. If you start, as most visitors do, at the west front and walk through the various courtyards, it's really not difficult to imagine yourself back in Tudor times. You're approaching Wolsey's great gatehouse, crossing over where there would have been a moat in those days. You go through the gatehouse to the largest courtyard in the palace, known as Base Court. A huge open square with lodgings all around it, which used to house dozens of courtiers, and where, in the middle, there was an octagonal wine fountain, so that guests would, as they arrived, be immediately struck by the lavish hospitality that Henry had planned for them. Standing there today, actually, is a recreation of the fountain, and I'm told that on special occasions it's even still used and wine flows from it. If you cross that courtyard to the gateway at the other side, you will be under Anne Boleyn's Gatehouse, as it's called, which leads into another courtyard, Clock Court, named after the astronomical clock still there, which dates from Henry's day and shows all kinds of things. It'll tell you the hours of the day, the days of the year, where the sun is in the zodiac, what phase the moon is in, and details of when high tide is. And as you stand and look at that, just think that it was in that courtyard that Henry and Catherine of Aragon had their apartments. Walk on through there, beyond to the next courtyard, Fountain Court, where Henry, in fact, had apartments with various of his other wives over the years. This one was largely rebuilt in the 17th century, so you're losing the Tudor atmosphere there. And all of this before you ever get inside. The main rooms to see inside the Tudor part of the palace are the Great Hall, the Great Watching Chamber, the Haunted Gallery and the Chapel Royal and each one has moments of history connected to it. I think it might be in the Great Hall that you can best imagine some of the goings-on. It's the largest room in the palace, 32 metres long, set with a top table and lots of other tables, so that you can easily imagine the 450 people or so who ate here twice a day. There's lots of information dotted about on little cards on the tables, telling you, for example, what was eaten there. The huge selection of food on offer would include, for the first course, beef, venison, mutton, carp, veal, swan, just imagine, stork and capons. And if you think that after that lot, second course is going to be pudding, well, kind of. Component parts apparently included jelly and cream of almonds, but also, wait for it, pheasant, partridges, quails. And the list goes on. Gulls, kid, lamb, pigeon rabbits, chickens, tarts and fruit, all with plenty of beer, ale and wine to drink. Try to imagine the lavish entertainment that was put on there, the music, the costume masks, the dances, the plays and the poetry. The dances sound pretty energetic, participants being required to stamp their feet, toss their heads and strut like peacocks. Lots and lots of music, that was a favourite of Henry's. He's said to have owned 26 lutes and a whole collection of other instruments, trumpets, viols, drums, harpsichords. And if he wanted to show off, and I think he frequently probably did, he would spend an evening playing each of them in turn, just because he could. Fools and minstrels would be brought in, acrobats. There'd be jokes and little plays. Henry would take part sometimes. Apparently a favourite role of his was to be seen rescuing a maiden from a castle. How ironic is that? People would wear their best finery, of course. And you just need to imagine tables piled high with gold plate, 
hundreds of candles lighting the room, making the gold sparkle, laughter, music, little scenes of seduction, the sort of thing that Henry really loved. Here's a line he wrote himself, clearly stating how what he liked most in life was to enjoy himself. Pastime with good company I love and shall until I die. And if you're worrying about all the people who weren't allowed into this room to enjoy all of this, let me tell you that at the end of the meal, almoners would go round, collect the leftovers and give them to poor people who'd collected at the palace gate. I think all six of Henry's queens spent some time at Hampton Court, but one that's most connected with it perhaps is Anne Boleyn, because as Henry acquired Hampton Court, he was also in the process of wooing her, and so it's said that he had some of the replanning and refurbishment done to impress her. He had formal gardens created, stretching from the palace right down to the river, where all the flower beds were edged in green and white, because those were the Tudor colours. Little carvings of the letters H and A entwined were put up to decorate, and, as you can imagine, yanked down again a few years later, when Anne was no more, and replaced with the letter J for wife number three, Jane Seymour. Actually, one got overlooked and is still there, high up on the wall in the Great Hall. So keep a look out for that as you go round. Anne especially loved music and dancing, and it's easy to imagine some of those scenes that you've probably seen in films about her. She is spotted catching the king's eye, with her lively enjoyment of all the entertainment on offer, wearing, as Antonia Fraser puts it in her book, The Six Wives of Henry VIII, quote, queenly robes and magnificent evocative jewellery, designed by Holbein and others, often with the initials H and A entwined. If you walk through the Great Hall and up the steps at the end, you'll end up in the Great Watching Chamber, a room which put a barrier between the Great Hall and the rest of Henry's more private apartments, a room where yeomen were stationed to watch who was coming and going, and who had access to the doors at the other end, which would lead through to Henry's private rooms. The yeomen were working to plenty of orders, some of which read quite abusingly today. They permit no man but lords, knights, gentlemen officers of the king's person and other honest persons. So if you're one of those, they'll let you through. If you're not, they won't. If you are a gentleman's page, you'll be allowed into the watching chamber, but only to speak to your master, and then you'll be expected to leave again. And here's one I really enjoyed. Quote, the place is not to be pestered with servants, rascals, boys and others. In modern parlance, no riffraff. It was also in the Great Watching Chamber in October 1537, where courtiers gathered, waiting, while Jane Seymour, third wife to King Henry, was in labour, and where eventually the news was announced for which they'd all been waiting. Henry had a son. He's said to have wept with joy. Antonia Fraser explains, At the age of 46, he had achieved his dream. God had spoken and blessed this marriage with a male heir, nearly 30 years after he had first embarked on matrimony. There are reports in the history books that Jane stayed in bed after the birth, receiving visitors on the day of the christening, three days later, wrapped up in velvet and in fur. Meanwhile, everywhere else, the nation was celebrating. Te deums were said, bonfires were lit, bells rung from morning till night from every church, as I saw it described. Two thousand guns were shot from the Tower of London. The mood was euphoric because Henry had his son, but only a few days later, Jane died 
and although Edward did indeed become king when his father died, he himself was still a teenager when he died in 1553. Through the other side of the great watching chamber comes the processional gallery, often called the haunted gallery. A corridor, really, but one leading to the chapel and one where one of the great events of the week would take place, the coming forth, as it was known, when Henry, on his way to the chapel, would process along the corridor, wearing his crown and his finest robes. Courtiers would line both walls, hoping to be seen, hoping to be noticed, their chance perhaps to secure a better position, or try and win Henry's favour for something. I found a particularly splendid description of him on Twelfth Night, walking along this corridor, Quote, crowned in his royal robes, set with rich stones, sapphires, rubies, emeralds and pearls. He has his sceptre in his right hand, the boar with cross in his left hand, and the crown upon his head. Very much associated with this corridor is a terrifying moment for Henry's fifth wife, Catherine Howard, because it was here that courtiers were sent to find her and take her away to charge her with adultery. Henry had also wooed Catherine at Hampton Court. She had, for example, been invited to spend New Year here in the year 1541. She was very young, only 19 or 20, and he called her his rose without a thorn. He was completely besotted with her, showered her with presents. I saw descriptions of, for example, a necklace of six fine table diamonds and five very fair rubies with pearls in between, and a muffler of black velvet furred with sables, hanging from a chain of thirty pearls, further ornamented with rubies and pearls strung on chains of gold. But Henry's fury knew no bounds when he heard tales of other lovers of hers. He sent the courtiers to arrest her, and she was terrified because she knew what this would mean. Apparently she tried to run away up the corridor to the chapel where Henry was praying, knowing that if he could see her in person, she could possibly charm him into forgiving her. But it wasn't to be. Henry ignored her. She was dragged away and locked in her rooms, told apparently that it was, quote, no more the time to dance. Henry never saw her again. He left Hampton Court a few days later, took his barge back to Whitehall, and didn't return until she had been taken away. A few weeks after that, she was charged for having, quote, an abominable, base, carnal, voluptuous and vicious life before marriage. She had, it was said, Quote, by word and gesture led Henry to love her, and arrogantly coupled herself with him in marriage, as if, can you imagine, she'd had any choice. The poor girl was eventually transferred to the tower to await her execution, and it's said that the night before, so anxious was she not to make a terrible impression, that she asked for the executioner's block to be brought to her room so that she might, quote, know how to place herself. And on the day itself, she said to the waiting spectators, or ghouls as you could otherwise call them, that she, quote, merited a thousand deaths for so offending a king who had treated her so graciously. I don't think her exact age is known, but she was twenty, or maybe twenty-one. It's said that Catherine's ghost haunts the gallery. There have allegedly been numerous sightings of a teenager, eyes wild with fear, dressed in white, approaching the spot where Henry was kneeling, and then turning away distraught. That spot, of course, being in the Royal Chapel, a great feature of life in the palace in Henry's day when, quote, it was ordained that on high days or holy days, great lords, strangers and ambassadors 
should all resort to court, and they would gather in the chapel. It is a gorgeous little jewellery box of a room, bright blue ceiling with golden stars, gilded vaults, gleaming polished wood panelling and pews. You can stand on a little balcony at the end and look down into it and imagine Henry there praying, ears shut to the terrified screams of Catherine. Those then are the main rooms to see inside the palace, but if you cross one of the courtyards, you can find the Tudor kitchens, where there's also lots to learn about life in Henry's day, these being the buildings where food was cooked to feed hundreds of courtiers every day, where lots of ordinary people toiled, a master cook, some yeomen, a group of staff known as children of the kitchen, porters, scourers, people called turnbrush, whose job it was to keep the roasting spits turning, and as you wander around and see the equipment, it's very easy to imagine all that toiling and broiling. There are lots of information panels dotted around, orders for the kitchen, for example, telling the cook that he must ensure that the meat be good and sweet and well-dressed, a command that somebody must clean the kitchen and galleries twice daily so there remain no filth, and, possibly slightly more bafflingly, an order that no cook shall go naked or work in vile garments. There are a whole line of hatches from the kitchens out to the corridor, you can imagine the servants running about collecting pewter and linen and food and carrying it all up to the great hall. And again, more rules and regulations, including, for example, the one stating that all items of pewter must be kept well and truly and saved from loss or theft. We are told that after all the important people had been fed, dinner for maids, servants, children, porters and scourers would follow, and that would be bread and ale, beef and veal. They did seem to eat vast quantities of meat. I think I read the statistic a kilo per person per day, although presumably that was the well-to-dos and not the servants. So much then for the Tudor era. There's plenty, plenty more to see if you have time and inclination. All the parts of the palace lived in by monarchs like William and Mary and the Georgian kings, many of whom introduced their own changes. William and Mary, for example, immediately hired Christopher Wren, asked him to tear the whole place down and build what they referred to as a new Versailles. A large building project did get underway, many, many changes were made, but in fact, only a few years later, Queen Mary died unexpectedly of smallpox and the project slowed down. But they have left us some lofty Baroque rooms, known in the guidebook as William III's Apartments. All also very regal, you can find rooms with titles like the Presence Chamber, the King's Eating Room and the King's Privy Chamber. So again, a great difference between the public spaces and the ones where the monarchs would live more privately. There's a withdrawing room, for example, into which the King could withdraw when he didn't want quite so much company. There's a great bedchamber where he would be attended by gentlemen of the bedchamber and go through that thing that Louis the Fourteenth used to do, known as the levee, so have visits from courtiers and whatnot while he was dressing. But when he wanted a bit more privacy or peace and quiet, he would retire to the little bedchamber. There are a set of rooms known as the Queen's Apartments too, again, the very public grand ones, and the smaller, quieter ones where queens like Caroline, wife of George II, and Charlotte, wife of George III, would retire if they wanted to do a little sewing, gossip with their ladies, play cards. 
You can see some hints of this in the Queen's private drawing room, where there's a mice and tea service on display, reminding us that the Georgians, of course, all had German heritage, were in fact pretty much German, where cards are set out on tables for a game known as quadrille, and where there's a lot of exotic Chinese and Japanese porcelain collected by Queen Caroline, apparently. Again, there were moments when courtiers would get their chance to try and speak to the royalty. For example, there was a tradition when George I was there that on a Sunday afternoon, all the courtiers would gather and stand in a circle and George would parade round the circle, speaking to those who were in favour at that moment and very possibly ignoring others. That room too has card tables, a reminder that there was lots of gaming, often with large sums of money involved. And in fact, in 1720, at the time when the stock market crashed, the South Sea bubble story, which I think I related in episode three about the city of London. At that moment, the king and the prince and many of the courtiers lost large sums of money because they too had been taken in by the idea that those shares were just going to go up and up and up in value. I think my favourite story from the Georgian era is the one about the birth of baby Augusta. So this is in the time of George II and Queen Caroline, who were living much of their time at Hampton Court, as was their son Frederick, the Prince of Wales, and his wife Augusta. The king and queen did not get on, to put it mildly, with their son. In fact, there was a massive feud between them, to the point where eventually the king refused to speak to his son at all, even if they were both in the same room. Frederick decided then that when his wife was pregnant, he would keep this secret. He did not want it anything to do with his parents, and he particularly did not want the baby to be born in their home. So when his wife Augusta went into labour, and it has to be said, despite her protests, that she didn't want to go anywhere, thank you very much, he had a carriage brought to the back door, all of this with the servants watching, dragged his wife down the stairs himself so that the two of them could be driven in secret to St James's Palace where baby Augusta was born three hours later. Of course it didn't end there. The prince and his new family were banished to Kew. It was made very clear that they would never be forgiven and poor Queen Caroline, who died a few months later, in fact never did see her son again. Presumably that meant she didn't meet the baby either. I have already mentioned the grounds to some extent and I think it's definitely the case that no visit to Hampton Court would be complete without at least a little look at some of the glories out there. The fantastic half-mile-long Broadwalk, for example, with its two-metre-wide herbaceous borders. You can see the Privy Garden, although not as it was in Henry VIII's time. More of a William III vibe, apparently. And lots of other separate little gardens dotted around the grounds. A fountain garden, the pond garden. No actual pond in it, I don't think. Apparently in Henry VIII's day there were fish ponds there to keep the palace kitchens well stocked, but no more. There's an orangery garden, planted with what are known as Queen Mary's exotics. There's the lovely rose garden, the real tennis courts, and of course perhaps the most popular thing in the entire garden, the UK's oldest maze, laid out at the very beginning of the 18th century, and as popular as ever with today's visitors of whom there are about 330,000 a year, apparently, and of whom the guidebook says, rather hopefully, that, as far as we know, they all come out again, eventually. There are lots and lots of reasons to visit Hampton Court, I think. A lovely day out, all kinds of interesting little facts on the last page or two of the guidebook tell us that, for example, they have 241 decorated chimneys, over 5,000 objects on display, 
looked after by a team of 33 specialist conservators. That seems a lot, doesn't it? The largest collection of royal and state beds and a medieval oak tree in the park believed to be about a thousand years old. Not to mention enough tapestries which, if laid out end to end, would cover an area of six tennis courts. So if you like facts and figures, there are plenty, plenty there to be found. But much more importantly, I think, is just the lovely atmosphere. The feeling that you can pretend you're back in Tudor times particularly, reliving some of those scenes that you've read about in books like Wolf Hall and seen on films, reminding you all over again what a dreadful ogre that King Henry VIII actually was. A little way out of London, but not so far as to be difficult really, just a few miles. You can even come by boat, as so many kings, queens and their visitors used to do. And once you've arrived, I very much recommend that you don't rush, but just wander and savour. So that brings us to an end for today then. Next week I'm going on another little out-of-town jaunt to another area just out of London, famed for its palaces. That's the one that doesn't exist anymore and the one you can still visit today. And its parkland, its hunting, its general nature, but only just outside central London. And that's to Kew and to nearby Richmond. I hope you'll be able to join me for that. For the moment, thank you very much for listening today. If you have enjoyed it, what would be really great would be if you could leave a review on whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on. I'd love to know what you've enjoyed, what you'd like more of, or indeed less of, and to have some contact with the people who are listening. So until next week then, thank you and goodbye.